Well, this morning's message is one that's been rattling around in my heart for uh, a month or more. And um, my message had started with uh, about two months ago, uh, Shelley and I were given a devotional called The Cross. And it was a collection of Charles Spurgeon um, devotions about the sayings on the cross of Christ. And as we were going through it, there were certain ones that particularly stuck out in my mind that I really hadn't thought deeply about or completely about or intently about that caught my heart, my mind. And as I was going through looking at this passage that we'll look at this morning, God just kept opening up. It was like a flower blossoming. And sometimes the petals come and keep coming and keep coming. And as God did that, he gave me just, just clarity about what I'm going to teach on this morning. As I alluded to earlier, it's based on the prophecy in Isaiah 53 about the crucifixion. Um, but we'll get into that uh, as we go through. But I just wanted to start with reading an excerpt from a, a little book called It's Who You Know. And it's written by Franklin Graham. It's uh, been published many times and it's uh, not a, a newer book, it's an older book. But what it has to say in order to open up our morning this morning I thought was so appropriate and spoke to me that I just wanted to share it with you guys this morning. He writes, the name of Jesus has long ignited strong emotions in human hearts. This is because he affected all of history. In his short 33-year life on earth, historian Philip Schaff described the overwhelming influence that Jesus had on subsequent history and culture of the world. This Jesus of Nazareth without money and arms conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, more than Caesar, more than Mohammed and Napoleon. Without science, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of the orator or the poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and finished themes, far more sermons and orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise. A great military leader said this, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and whatever other religions the, the, the distance of infinity. Everything in Christ astonishes me. I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history nor humanity nor the ages nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or to explain it. Signed, Napoleon. Another famous person. Christ is the most unique person in history. No man can write a history of the human race without giving first the foremost place to the penniless teacher of Nazareth. That was H.G. Wells. And finally, it is a great consolation for me to remember that 
the Lord to whom I had drawn near in humble and childlike faith has suffered and died for me, and that he will look on me in love and compassion. Signed, Mozart. And finally, after a week of perplexing problems, it does my soul good to come into the house of the Lord and to sing and mean it. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, my great joy and glory is that in occupying an exalted position in this nation, I am able to preach the practical moralities of the Bible to my fellow countrymen and to hold up Christ as the hope, the savior of the world. Teddy Roosevelt. And others, of course, feel much differently. For 2,000 years, they have scoffed at the name and mocked those who follow the one who bears it. After all these centuries, just why is the name so controversial and still stirring such a brew of conflicting passions? Answering that question is crucial. It is eternally important for you to know much about the name. This is just, just not another interesting spiritual topic. An understanding of this name is the key to all life. That's why this morning we sang so many songs that were themed and were spoken about Christ and his name. In a world in which we live in today, we are exposed to many gospels, many presentations of the gospel, many techniques of the gospel, as many of you have witnessed on Wednesday nights uh, on Fellowship Hall going through the, so, uh, the American Gospel video series. We have a social gospel, an environmental gospel, an economic gospel, physical healing gospel, an experiential gospel, an emotional gospel, moralistic gospel, therapeutic gospel, psychological gospel, and so on. But so seldom are we exposed to the true biblical gospel. We are living in a world that is becoming more and more antagonistic to the truth, more seeker-sensitive to appeal to one's heart, emotions, and experiences. We are afraid that we may be characterized as being insensitive, irrational, irresponsible. We water down the message and complicate the simplicity of the true gospel to make it more attractive while compromising the foundation of the gospel. We make excuses, redefine the terms, and soften the singular intent that was established by Christ himself, even to the end as he hung on that cross. As we read through our text this morning, let us pay, pay close attention to the dialogue taking place between Jesus and the two criminals, the onlookers, the religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, and the general public passing by. In the midst of this brutal torment, public ridicule, and humiliation, we are witness to the Lord's unmitigated, uncompromising, and unwavering love, mercy, and grace. We do not see any compromise. We do not see any misinformation. We will not see a seeker-sensitive approach. What we will see is that there is nothing we can do to open the portals of heaven outside of Christ. 
We must have humility, confession of our sin, repentance of heart and mind, and the acknowledgement of our need for a Savior. And a complete faith and trust in his unfailing love, his grace and his mercy, through faith in Christ, which, by the way, comes directly from him. We will be witness to a supernatural change of heart, an understanding of who Jesus is and the promise he makes to those who believe. The simplicity of this biblical gospel is meant to be so, so that all who hear it will understand it. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess who Jesus is. The question is, will your knee bow and tongue confess in his kingdom? Or will your knee bow and your tongue confess in his judgment? Let's stand as we read tonight, this morning's text here. Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to a place called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on one side, one on the left side. And Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing his clothes among themselves. Now the people stood by, watching. But even the rulers ridiculed and sneered at him, saying, He saved others from death. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Chosen One of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him and cruelly offering him some sour wine and sarcastically saying, if you are really the king of the Jews, save yourself from this death. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who had been hanged on the cross beside him kept hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us from death. But the other one rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We are suffering justly, because we are getting what we deserve for what we have done. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the, the power behind these words. I pray, Lord, that you would give me utterance through your spirit, that the words that they hear are not my own, but yours. And that, Lord, that the conviction of the Holy Spirit would take these words and apply them to the hearts, Lord, of the people who are listening. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Pastor John MacArthur gives an excellent summary of the numerous ironies that are taking place here at Calvary. The penitent thief is one of many ironies that are taking place. Number one is Jesus was being mocked because he could not save himself, yet he saved others, including the thief, by not saving himself. 
Secondly, he was accused by rulers of Israel of claiming to be a king and hence the threat to the power and authority of Rome. They warned Pilate that he needed to be executed before he could lead a revolt. And yet, those same people who claimed to be protecting Rome from Jesus mocked, scorned, and ridiculed him as impotent and helpless. He was treated like a king in a sarcastically cruel, destructive way, yet he was God's chosen king. He was accused of blasphemy against God by those who blasphemed him, the true God. Jesus, the innocent, righteous one, was executed by the guilty, turning justice on its head. He was cursed by his enemies who hated him, but cursed in an infinitely greater way by his Father who loved him. And the one who gives life and is life died that those who are dead might receive that life. First point is the penalty. Verses 32-33 says, Two others were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to a place called the Skull, or Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, one on the left. This word for criminals is somewhat generic. It means an evildoer, one who commits gross misdeeds and serious crimes. Luke uses this three times to describe the two thieves crucified with him in verses 32, 33, and 39. And Paul uses it once in 2 Timothy 2.9. And literally, through the King James translates it, malefactors. Literally, one who does wrong, who commits a crime or something heinous. This is who Jesus was accompanied with on that hill. The passage in Isaiah 53.12 says, Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty and with, strong, with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death, he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for those transgressors. Those are the criminals that Jesus was associated with. The provision, 1 Peter 2, 22 through 25 says, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Verse 34, and this is what really caught my attention. This is what started the whole foundation of this message. Jesus was saying, some translations say said, or, or some that you say said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. It is important to make a note here that this word for saying or said is in the imperfect tense. What does that mean? That means that Jesus was saying these mercy-filled words 
more than once. He was saying it over and over. I just want us to pause for a moment so that it sinks down. We pass over this sometimes too fast. Notice that it was clearly a prayer, and yet it seems to have been prayed out loud. Jesus frequently offered prayer audibly as an example to us. Sometimes it's easier to keep awake when we're praying. Sometimes it does put us to sleep. But thank God that we can go to sleep with that on our heart. At the very height of his turmoil and pain, his agony and shame, his sacrifice and payment for our sin, he states the purpose for it all, for redemption, restoration, and resurrection as he utters this merciful prayer. And as I go through this, I want you to make a mental note of the people, the participants that are in this scenario. Who were they? The people stood by watching the curious, the onlookers, they would have heard. Even the rulers ridiculed and sneered at him. The soldiers also mocked him and sarcastically saying, if you are the real king of the Jews, save yourself. Now let's go back. Now, the people stood by watching the curious and the onlookers. They would have heard, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The rulers ridiculed and sneered at him, saying, He saved others from death. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the Messiah of God, his chosen one. They would have heard, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The soldiers, also mocking him, would have heard, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And sarcastically saying, if you are really the king of the Jews, save yourself from death. With the inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. They would have heard, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The intensity of that phrase gets deeper every time you read that. Every time you read each verse and think in your mind, that after each verse, Christ is saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The king of the Jews was written down in all four Gospels. Matthew 27, 37 says it like this. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark 15, 26 says, the king of the Jews. John 19, 19 says, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. But if we take all four accounts, including the one here in Luke, we get a combination of, this is Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. The completeness of the four Gospels. And the inscription was written in three languages. Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Another way to look at this triple title is to look at it from a biblical perspective, although Pilate had no intention of making this point. But God did. Hebrew, the world of religion and the law. Latin, 
the world of politics and power in Rome, and Greek to the world of philosophy and the intellect. Three languages to address those three things. So you see the significance of words. God has a plan. God had a design. God had a purpose. Then we come to the prideful. In verse 39, it says, one of the criminals who had been hanged on the cross beside him kept hurling abuses at him. Now we know from the two other gospels that both in the beginning were doing that very same thing. But now in Luke, Luke only mentions one. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself from this death. And he probably heard, Father, forgive him, for he doesn't know what he's doing. Hurling abuse is also done in the imperfect tense, meaning that it was over and over and continuous. Literally blaspheming God. In the sense that the criminal was blaspheming Jesus, and it includes several ideas. Speaking harm, slander, defamation, speaking evil, reviling, insolent, abusive, railing. All those things are included in this man's rant, so to speak. It's not too much different than sometimes we see in our own world, is it? I mean, you've watched parts of the video. You've seen responses to the crucifixion. Some of it's mind-boggling. But it's no different than what was happening here. Are you not the Christ? This phrase is meant to be more piercing and bitter. This is a form of deep, intentional sarcasm to the core. Questioning the very God of the universe his authority, his deity, and his holiness. Save yourself and us. This taunt is repeated. Those passing by, the soldiers. This is somewhat fascinating that the thief was actually crying out to the Lord for his salvation. But was he saved? I don't think so. Why? First, he was not asking for eternal salvation, but he was asking from the agony of, of the crucifixion to be saved. Notice he doesn't cry out, save me, but he says, save us. Whereas the other thief personalized his request. It would be like us today asking God to remove us from an uncomfortable trial or situation rather than help us through it. Whatever we are going through, to recognize his grace through it. Secondly, this thief had no fear of God. No fear of God before their eyes. Thirdly, he exhibits no evidence of repentance as the other thief will. And we come to that part of the repentant thief. Verse 40. But the other one rebuked him saying, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Can you imagine the other thief going, what are you talking about? Are you out of your mind? The story of the penitent thief is found only in this gospel. 
What makes this testimony so amazing is that his body was enduring the agony and the suffering of crucifixion. But in a moment, his mind became clear. This is evidence of God's sovereign, miraculous intervention. The Spirit of God had convicted him of his sin and granted him repentance and faith. His eyes were opened to the grand drama in which he was a participant. The unbelieving thief, the godless soldiers, and the Jewish religious leaders were blinded to the truth, even though it was right in front of them. Paul reminds us that all of us, regarding the gospel, that he was to take it to the Gentiles, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from their darkness to light, and from the dominion of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of their sins, and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in Christ, Acts 26, 18. The spiritual eyes of this penitent thief had been supernaturally opened and enlightened. This is the evidence of an amazing work of God's grace in a sinner's heart, lest you think you have anything to do with it. The sudden change of heart and understanding also recalled the abrupt change in Paul, who was Saul prior to that point, who was on his road to Damascus to persecute Christians. So the repentant criminal, like Paul, in a supernatural moment was rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred him into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1.13. But back at verse 40, it says, Do you not even fear God? Do you not even fear God? In our society today, I think it's very hard for us to even associate with fear. There's so many things that make us afraid. God's a benevolent God. He's a loving God. Why should I fear him? That's not a healthy understanding of God. The absence of the fear of God is characteristic of non-believers, as Paul described in Romans 3, 9 and following which he summed up in these words. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They scoffed at words like Jesus spoke in Luke, declaring, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do, but they can kill the soul. But I will warn you, whom to fear? The one who you should fear after he has killed has the authority to cast you into hell. And I tell you, fear him. This is Luke 12, 4 and 5. In short, the unregenerate hearts do not fear God. Solomon was correct when he said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise the wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1, 7. Matthew 10, 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fill him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Psalm 33, 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 
Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is, the, is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Proverbs 14, 26, in the fear of the Lord is strong confidence and his children shall have a place of refuge. Clearly, the penitent thief had been miraculously converted from no fear of God to the right fear of God. If you ask me, do you fear God? My answer is, yes, absolutely, I do. I'm not afraid of God, but I do fear him. Let me see if I can illustrate this with a practical application. When an electrician goes to work, is he afraid of electricity? He couldn't work if he was. He would die of fright before even getting there. He's not afraid of electricity, but he fears electricity. There is a difference. He respects the electricity, but does not have a shaking fear of it, or he could never do his job. The fear of the Lord is a holy respect and awe, a sense of reverence that he, that we have for the Almighty and his holiness. Have you ever been on the freeway and seen the blinking lights behind you? What, what wells up inside of you? Fear. What did I do? Why is he getting, I, did, I was going the speed limit. What did I do? What do you do? You pull over. And the whole time, you're just inside. You're trying to get your license and whatever, you know. And he's walking up very cautiously with his book. You know what's coming. Rolling down your window. We all have that type of fear. But we respect that policeman because he has a job to do. When that thief on the cross states, do you not even fear God? He's recognizing who Jesus is. He's recognizing there's something different about this man who's hanging with him. He's recognizing that with the words he heard, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, is starting to make sense. He's recognizing that he is momentarily, he's going to be dying. He's recognizing all these things because the Spirit of God is opening his eyes. And he states it perfectly. He says in verse 41, we are suffering justly because we are getting what we deserve, what we have done. But this man, he's done nothing. One writer puts it this way, the, the criminal says, nature forms us Sin deforms us, the word informs us, and Christ transforms us. What the Bible is teaching is the admission of guilt is the agreement with God about his sinfulness, justly identifying he is justly condemned. We are receiving what we deserve for our deeds he was owning up to it. You see, we as sinners have to come to that conclusion. 
Why else would we need a savior unless we identified with that criminal that we are getting justly what we deserve? This is a crucial dynamic in, this, in the salvation. When we proclaim the gospel, if we fail to emphasize that we are all sinners, then how can anyone ever see their need for a savior? The good news is not that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Just believe in Jesus. This is not the biblical gospel. This is an incomplete and deceptive gospel. Why? It fails to confront the person with the very thing this penitent thief realized. I am a sinner and I deserve punishment for my sins against a holy and righteous God. The penitent thief came to realize not only that his sins against society warranted his place on the cross, but he also came to recognize that he was sinning against God himself by doing that. In fact, is more grievous. In essence, the thief was saying, we are suffering the judgment of God. We are suffering righteously and justly for what we did. We are receiving what we deserve. Not an easy thing to hear in the world in which we live, where all people are good, all people do good things. I'm reminded of, in Luke chapter 18, we've all heard this story, of the repentant tax collector who cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Note that he is recognizing his need of mercy. That's where true salvation begins. No one can be saved who has not first seen himself or herself as a lost sinner before a holy and righteous and loving God. Yes, loving, but holy and righteous. But I want you to look at the verses beforehand. This self-righteous Pharisee spoke two verses filled with five pronouns. I think you'll pick them up when I read it. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a day. I give a tenth of what I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you the truth. This man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Did you notice the five pronouns? What are they? I, I, I. The focus was on himself, his self-righteousness, his pride, his arrogance, and not his sin, which would have awakened the need for repentance and a savior. And Jesus concluded this by declaring, I tell you this, that that man went home justified. Why? He identified himself realistically of who he was before a holy God. 
When he continues in verse 40, 42, he says, this man has done nothing wrong. His spiritual eyes had been opened open by this time to see that the one who was hanging next to him, unblemished, spotless, innocent of the same penalty he was receiving, was truly the Savior. How did he know? Maybe he heard it through the city. We can't certain, be certain to, hear, to, to know for sure, but we figure that in the process, he had heard stories about Jesus. Maybe he had seen miracles or heard people talk about these miracles this man from Nazareth was performing. But nonetheless, but this man has done nothing wrong. He identifies his innocence. We sang some songs this morning that had promises in it. Let's look at a couple promises. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ. To, God, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And finally, in 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. There's no room for wiggle room here. We get to the promise finally. And he said, Jesus said, in verse 42, or excuse me, the criminal said to Jesus in verse 42, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. Again, saying and identifying, he says, Jesus. We sang songs this morning that were focused on the name. The name. The name holds incredible power. Incredible authority. The name Jesus talks about the Messiah, the Savior. By his saying his name, he's saying, I'm identifying with you as the Messiah, the Savior. Just in that one word. But Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, he identified that Jesus had a kingdom above the world in which he was identifying with, beyond what he knew. He also knew that there was a possible resurrection. Maybe he had heard before of the resurrection of Lazarus or stories that Jesus was healing people and bringing them back from the dead. We don't know exactly what was going through his mind, but by his own testimony, there's something going on. God is making him understand and see. Somewhere, God was changing his heart, changing his sight. Many times, I remember hearing the gospel but it didn't change my heart, my mind. Could have been God's timing. 
Could have been my resistance. Could have been a lot of things. Many of you have heard the gospel many times. Some have only heard it one time, and it clicks. God gives you that grace and mercy, and boom, you know. If you've heard it more than once, twice, 10, 15 times, my heart hurts because the truth doesn't change. Look at yourself. What is keeping you from that understanding? And Jesus says to him, I assure you, or verily, and most solemnly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Can you imagine the relief of that criminal? Now he is on the verge of death. Jesus is speaking to him. He has been awakened. Today you're going to be with me. Oh, okay. I don't care what happens now. End of story. When Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, he is saying, amen. You will be with me. As he desired the penitent thief might know beyond the shadow of a doubt where he would be in the moment after he closed his eyes on this earth, he'd open them in his kingdom. This thief had no time to consider anything else. He had no way to serve. He had, wasn't baptized. He was just acknowledging in faith who Christ was. And when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you can bank on it, right? You can bank on it. Jesus was saying, listen up. What I'm about to say is very, very important. And you should listen, as we, Terry was teaching this morning, quick to listen. Listen carefully. If you're hearing these words, listen carefully. Jesus is saying, this is important. This is very important. In fact, this is one of the most important things you're going to hear. That's what he was telling that thief. The assurance that that thief had at that moment of time, given by God himself, had to be overwhelming. I mean, just being in that place in agony, crucified, along with Christ, knowing that his death is imminent, is shown mercy. Amazing. The great late Adrian Rogers, who was a great preacher, talked about deathbed conversions. He says, is deathbed repentance possible? Sure, but it's not probable. The Bible records one and only one deathbed repentance, and this is the one. He's saying, I'm telling you that at any time, any place, anywhere, that anybody calls on Jesus, he'll be saved. But the Bible is not full of stories of people who got saved on their deathbed. 
Most of the people who were saved got saved when they were young. Jesus said to the thief, today you will be with me. Today is God's word. Tomorrow is the devil's word. Rogers goes on to say, oh my friend, if you ever intend to get saved, today is the day. Now is the hour. How was this thief saved? He didn't have anything good to do. He wasn't a good person. He just acknowledged. He just acknowledged who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, today you'll be with me. Jesus' answer was that he would receive God's forgiveness and be saved from eternal wrath. How was he saved? Like every other sinner. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Why? Because no one's going to boast. It's not your works. It's his. And note that time phrase, today. It means that he would not have to go through some hypothetical transitional period. He would not have to come back in the next life. He would not be in a waiting room for God's, for Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. None of us look to that, but we understand it by faith that that's what's going to happen. What a wonderful contrast. He is in this very moment with Jesus on the cross. But in another moment, he will be with Jesus in paradise. Sinful people are not capable of exercising repentance and faith by their own free will. We are a fallen humanity, sinful by nature. The mindset is fleshly and hostile towards God. Unable to subject itself. Unable to please God. That's why it's through faith, by grace, alone. 1 Corinthians says the natural man cannot understand the things of God. 2 Corinthians says because Satan has blinded his mind to the gospel. And Acts 11 says, thus God most graciously grants both repentance and faith. In closing, the great thinker, science, scientific mind, Carl Sagan. Many of us remember Carl Sagan's millions and millions of stars. Carl Sagan was fascinated that educated adults with the wonders of science manifested all around them. How could they cling to beliefs based on the unverifiable testimony of observers dead for over 2,000 years? If you're so smart, why do you believe in God? He once asked this cleric, Joan Brown Campbell. She found this a surprising question from someone who had no trouble accepting the existence of black holes, which, had no, which no one has ever observed before. And she responded with a question, asking Carl, well, if you're so smart, why don't you believe in God? 
Carl Sagan never wavered in his agnosticism, even when he was dying. There was no deathbed conversion, his wife, Anne Duran, said. No appeals to God, no hope for an afterlife, no pretending that he and I would have been inseparable for 20 years would never say goodbye. Someone said, didn't he ever want to believe? And she replied sharply, Carl never wanted to believe. He just wanted to know. You see, intellectual faith is not good enough. Real faith begins with a proper understanding of who God is and who we are before him. The righteous and holiness of God. His requirement is perfection. I haven't met any perfect people. Maybe you have. It's a deception. It doesn't exist. We must realize, as the repentant thief did, that we deserve judgment and recognize our sin to understand our need for that Savior. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is written there on your sheet. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will, should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." The most and only important question to ask yourself today. Between the two, which sinner are you? Are you the one who is throwing ridicule? Or are you the one who is repenting? There is no alternative. You're one or the other. You're hearing the truth as a thief on the cross did. Make no mistake, this is real, this is true. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you, Father, for the power of your word. I pray this morning, Lord, that your spirit would convict the hearts of those who are here. Whether a believer or not a believer, Lord, encourage us through your spirit and convict those, Lord, who are still struggling. As you said to that thief on the cross, today is the day you will be with me. God, I pray that today would be the day where those who are hearing my voice would put their faith and trust in Christ. End the debate. End the opposition. And submit. I know it takes humility to do that. We've all had to do that, Lord but it also takes recognition of who you are. There's no denying that. So I pray, Father, that through the power of your spirit, through your grace and through your mercy, that you would call those souls into your presence. 
We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.